Welcome back, Jake. We're on episode 25. Can you believe it? We're a quarter of a century. Yes, I can believe it because we have been doing this for what now? Like two years, maybe? Yeah, we started in the fall or the autumn of COVID year. So that would have been 2021. No, it must have been 2020, fall of 2020. Well, and I, the then, COVID's completely messed up my old and then we of did, timings. Yeah, I reckon fall of 2020, and 2020. then we went all the way through till all of 2021, and well, now, yeah. And yeah, yeah. So, 25. Well, I mean, I was just thinking, like, we're so used to everyone knowing the, you know, the gist of the podcast, but, you know, if anyone is new, hi, I'm Tom. I'm sat here on Jake's sofa. This is Jake. Hi, I'm Jake. Yes, I am the co-host to this wonderful podcast, First to Die, where we discuss the first significant death, or actually the first death, in many of our favorite Steven Spielberg films and a few others that don't involve Steven Spielberg, like this week's choice. I don't think he was involved at all, but he'll probably found a way in. He'll probably be in a tree in a background or something. He was in there. The influence was there. I imagine Steven Spielberg's actually in every movie that's ever made. It's the secret that we've uncovered. I'm just waiting for the, the moment when he sends his goons to kill us. This will be the last found out. This will be the last episode of First to Die because. He will find out and we will be offed. Which of us will be the first to die? Oh, I don't know. I imagine he'd get a sniper shot and gets both in one. Oh my God. So we both die at the same yeah, time. Yeah. That's a pretty, I mean, is there, is there a movie out there where the first death is two is people, two people who are sniped right. at the same time? Okay. If anyone knows that, write in, message us. <laughs> that is your challenge. That's your homework. Lovely uh, friends and families and three strangers. Love those three strangers. I was thinking we kind of have developed sort of quasi rules over the years, I guess, of uh, the first to die. So it's um, got to be kind of a named character. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily have to be human, but has to be a named character. True. They have to die in the context of the movie. Yes. So there's no dying, oh, yes. you know, before the film starts. And I think pretty much that's it. <laughs> I mean, would you say they have to die kind of or be seen dead on screen? If it was like, oh, Jerry died and it's like the third scene and it's just a character saying Jerry's dead. That's not really. Is that a first to die? I mean, I suppose technically, but we probably just wouldn't do it because it would be rubbish. It would be boring, guys. So we're not going to do that one. Okay. Unless anyone knows of a significant movie <laughs> where somebody dies off screen, then it's very plot relevant and you think you could irk out 45 minutes talking about um, Tom, that should be your homework for Jeez, your. Homework. You've got a tr yeah, I that's true. That's true. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, you do do enough homework. Talking about homework. Yes. Your job of editing and releasing the podcast was somewhat overshot the mark. For context, guys, I said to Tom before this record, I will bring up the fact that I missed the release date for the first time on last month's podcast and now he's framed it as if he's the one bringing it up i was taking full responsibility for that and as you heard in that podcast on shallow grave i had been away for the whole of the month pretty much thank you thomas for april having a wonderful time um and yes it didn't come out on the friday it came out on the monday i believe the amount of complaints i had <sighs> Justified. I am so Justified. sorry. Now, there are our friends and family who are out there that know me. They know, they know <laughs> what I was up to. I'm talking about the AD who's down the road that was giving you shit for the fact that it was late. He's part of the problem. 
I've also got my buddies like in Amsterdam, Ollie, who listens religiously. I'm, I love him to death. He saw me when I was in Amsterdam. He can appreciate that sometimes it's difficult to be editing podcasts when you're on the move. All right. And, and happening, you know, keeping everyone else happy So you're saying it's fine because your friends knew you were busy? Well, write into us, guys, at First Die Pod on all of your socials and let me know if I am... A piece of shit or not okay <laughs> and i will endeavor i mean who knows maybe this podcast will be coming out a few days late too maybe i'll just do it to piss you off tom when is the which 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 date is this going out on no it's the end friday you made the rules i'm having a look the end friday of this month luckily that's the 27th so it's it's a late one in the month it this is time well, you've got plenty of time i've got plenty of time i should be able to have it should being the should, should being the operative word operative word and also if anyone's wondering if the sound is a little bit different again it's because yet again we are in jake's flat but if you think it's a little bit echoey than usual no wet pants purposefully put them away guys yeah. genuinely had dry pants hanging today and was like i'm gonna put these away because yeah. i don't need that sass from tom again <laughs> i don't need that sass about oh you have wet pants up i'm a single man living alone I have to hang my washing out, darling, okay? Yeah, but you have to do it every time we record a podcast. I'm going to have a fucking swig of my gin and tonic because you are pushing me to stress. Oh, that is true. We are gin and tonicking again. So um, you didn't hear it last time because Jake beautifully edited it out every time. We... That is not true. There is a moment in last... There gin. are moments in last month's podcast where the clink of ice is ever so slightly audible because I heard it and I left it in, guys. It's a little Easter egg for you. We were having gin and tonics and we're back on it again this week. It's getting looser as we're getting older on this podcast. We're feeling a little bit more loosey-goosey. We just, you know, we started off with professional clown equipment and now we're just laying on the sofa drinking gin. We will return somewhat to our old days of us, you know, headphones, looking at the screen, sound editing all around us. We will do that research. Well, I'm not sure about that one for me. That's not, let's not push it too far, guys. This, this month, we should talk about this one because what, and and, and I'm going to say it because I chose it. What a weird and interesting choice that turned out to be. My God, I would have to say in summary, this movie has aged like a fine milk. Yes. It is not great. We are talking American Beauty, controversial choice from uh, Jake last week. Uh, uh, yeah. I, but let's, I say we do the 30 second summary and then let's just get the hell into it. And a little bit of a caveat up front. I know usually I do a whole bunch of fact bomb research. This film kind of annoyed me to the point where I was like, I don't really want to do a whole bunch of like, ooh, Ted Danson was originally cast for this role. We're mostly going to be going in thematic and talking about some of the big thematic issues throughout this movie, which I think now have become in wake of the Me Too movement, in wake of just general fucking social conscious awareness. Like, it is not great anymore. And I think we need to just use probably most of our time just chewing over some of these big issues. Yes, we will get into it. But to kick us off, the 30-second summary, for those of you who may not have seen the film or can't remember, I will quickly try and break it down for you. Are you ready, Tom? I am ready. My timer is ready. You can see my timer as well, which is Good. a nice change. Usual. Well, let's do it. Three, two, one, go. So Kevin Spacey plays Lester. He is a middle-aged, somewhat over the hill, depressed individual in 
very much middle America. He, his family, wife, who is Caroline, and daughter Jane, that's Annette Benning and Thora Birch, they basically think he is a loser. And he's losing his mind. And therefore, he decides to turn things around and start rebelling against it. Uh, eventually, is killed. Done. Dun, dun, dun. Wasted a lot of time name dropping there. Yeah, I know because I I had their names open in front of me on and you my thought, oh, just like, phone. Like, like I did some well, research. Well, I just wanted to. The three main cast members are the family. It is the father, the mother, and the daughter. There are secondaries, obviously, that are of importance, but this is mainly a family drama, and it is also mainly a very male gaze style. Uh, okay, drama. Well, we will talk about that. I think. Uh, Sam Mendes was a theater director coming off theater work. Obviously, beautiful cinematography and music, but very stagey. You could imagine it being a stage performance and theater. Yeah, that's true, obviously. So I I had seen, I remember, this is, so this is 1999. Yeah. Films then, it was an odd mix. We had some incredible sci-fi. We had a very good example of toxic masculinity in Fight Club. And then I think when it came to things like dramatic fare, there was a slight divide. And this one definitely comes out on the wrong side of that divide, whereas Fight Club would be on the right side, I would say. Although Fight Club's more of a thriller than a drama. It is, really. and it is it is a lot more tongue-in-cheek as a movie. Now, no, that's not me defending it because I think there is a lot in Fight Club that is still problematic. And we should actually do Fight Club one of these days because I think Meatloaf is the first dynamo. I think so as I well. He is. So we, we may come back to that one and talk about it again. But I think they're probably good companion pieces because I think they have the same inherent problems at their heart, um, which is around that male gaze and the, and the storytelling of it being on their side a little yeah. bit. So... Whereas when we were talking about Three Billboards, we were saying like, is the film racist or is it dealing with racist characters slash issues? And we, uh, between ourselves, I don't know, we were, we were kind of questioning our bias, but we sort of fell on the side of like, the filmmaking isn't biased. It, it isn't racist, but the characters are. Yeah. And they are not shown to be sympathetic and we're not really supposed to empathize a huge amount with them, um, especially with the case of Sam Rockwell. But I think in this instance, I find the movie making and the storytelling incredibly chauvinistic and problematic because even though we have several stories happening at once, we have the relationship between Jane and Creepy Ricky. We have the mm. next door neighbor issue, which now let's just get straight into spoilers, dealing with his sexuality. And then we have Lester and his issues. And then we have his wife as well. But the film frames it around Lester. He voices over, he's the voiceover. He usually is the first in the scene and the last in the scene. We as and we are brought into his dreams and his fantasies. We are sort of made to see what he sees and be part of it. Mm. Um, you know, we are we are part of, you know, what he's thinking. And that wouldn't be too bad if what he's thinking about wasn't having sex with a minor, basically. Yeah. Um, you know. They they do they very loosely sketch that she may be eighteen because Ricky's eighteen and they're in the same year, but it's very vague. And even if she is eighteen, she's only really just eighteen. Yeah. And you know, screw it. A couple of years ago, she was sixteen. You know, like or she was fifteen. She's still incredibly young. We 
as a viewer, are made to watch Lester's fantasies of her dancing sexually, of her in a bathtub of roses, being all sexually suggestive. And it's horrible. Yeah, it, I, and I, it I did not age well. that I have been made to be complicit in that fantasy, mm -hmm. as opposed to objectively viewing this guy as pathetic, which he is. But we're not. It's not shot that way. No, and it, uh, it's so odd. It's one of those times. So when I recommended this film, um, as I was saying, you know, I was a fan of Sam Mendes from when he directed Road to Perdition. Road to Perdition was one of the first films that I truly fell in love with. The cinematography, the performances, the story. It was very moving and it was, it was a beautiful film. So I was a big fan of Sam Mendes um, in the early days because this would have been... I would have been young mm -hmm. and American beauty seemed arty and different. There wasn't a lot of that type of stuff out there at the time. And for a young film enthusiast, I was lapping it up, but 1999 was a very different time. Yeah. And now watching it when I'm 33 years old and it's 2022, I was like, shit, this isn't fun. Like, it just doesn't feel good. No, it feels no. ab like abusive on so many levels. I mean, I think there's there's a few things of late. Like one, I think we're older, and I I did have a sense of, or like I guess guilt for having liked the movie, back when I first saw it, and I think I was around sixteen ish. I think we rented it from Blockbuster, and yeah, kind of guilt that I used to think this was a good movie in the same way. And yes, as a film fan. You know, that it was up there as like, oh yeah, brilliant movie. You know, the cinematography is beautiful. The color red and the use of red throughout is blah, 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 blah. blah. Thematic. Oh, so clever, so clever, so clever. Um, and now I watch it as, a, as someone who is nearer to Lester's age. He's 43. I'm not quite past 40. He's yet. close. He's pretty close. But yeah, nearer than I was. And I'm kind of appalled by the whole thing and find it repulsive. And... What is interesting as well, I went on Rotten Tomatoes to have a look at the reviews because obviously that's reviews from you know a long time ago as well as, as near reviews when they do re-reviews. And they were mostly from when the film came out. Very, very positive. All men, All you know, men. and then it won, not exactly sure exactly which Academy Awards it won, but it, it, I know it did very- Six Academy Six Awards. Academy Awards in an era where a lot of men voting. It was all very like- and, it's just like, oh, it's a very, a story for white men, written by white men, yeah. praised by white men as being oh so profound and interesting because all the male characters are portrayed as interesting and enigmatic and, you know, sympathetic when what they are doing is, and this accounts for Ricky as well, being fucking weird, creepy, not respecting women, uh, just being generally awful people. Pretty predatory. And honest. incredibly predatory. Yeah. On both of their accounts. On both of their accounts. Uh, whereas the women are treated as sexual objects predominantly or figures of either tragedy that you are supposed to go like, oh my God, isn't, isn't she so tragic or isn't she so pathetic? Yeah. Or isn't she so crazy? Because those are the emotions apparently that only women have. They're either crazy or they're just, you know, they're there to be laughed at. Or they're trying to fuck. You know, like, you know, or yeah, they're, they're manipulative and sneak and it's just awful and and i i remember like and actually a lot of and i think when you speak to men about it a lot of men remember it favorably but i have been talking to 
friends who are women and they've all been like, no, it was creepy. It was always creepy. So it's not like as a society, we've all changed our moods. It's just us stupid white guys have gone, mm. oh yeah, that's really awful, isn't it? And then everyone else is nodding their heads at us. <laughs> well, there we go. I mean, that's that's one of those things because the, the, the reason I recommended this is obviously that Kevin Spacey, and we haven't even got into how problematic he is as a person now, but Kevin Spacey is shot and killed at the end of the movie. He's the first to die. He he is the first character in the whole film, and it is literally in the last three minutes. And I thought, what a great option for us to discuss. What a great different angle that we probably haven't done before. And then to watch it and be like, oh no, oh oh, his character, and this is so problematic with just storytelling in general. Mm -hmm. It's it's lazy. It's cheap. It's demeaning. It was surprising to me. Um, and I thought, shit, okay, well, what a good discussion point for us to have on the yeah, podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's a great choice because I don't think we've really had a movie apart from maybe Never Ending Story where we're a bit knives out for it. But um, I fucking hated that film. <laughs> but I watched this movie like two or three days ago. And honestly, by the time it finished, I was so angry. Mm. Like, you know, when you sort of just want to just slam the off button on your TV and you just like, God, I'm pissed off. No like, more of that. Thank you very you know, much. Like, crikey, everything about this movie has just wound me up. Uh, and in those regards, I do think like, hey, maybe if you are listening to this thinking, God, I don't remember it being that bad. Maybe go give it a rewatch. Go watch it, Because I, I think some movies you need to reassess and go, you know what? That's not good. You know, like, and actually I should stop putting it in my brain as this great movie and actually just reassess something sometimes. Like it is good to do that too. So here's what I suggest we do. I think we should address the elephant in the room first, which is Kevin Spacey. Absolutely. Get that out of the way, kind of draw a line under that. And then I want to dive into a little bit more about what was really wrong for us and maybe a little bit of what was good. And then we'll, we'll go from there. So first and foremost, Kevin Spacey in this film is playing essentially a uh, a predator towards an underage girl, right? Yeah. That's what he's doing. Unfortunately, art has mimicked life because it has come out that Kevin Spacey very much was a sexual predator towards minor aged men in real life. And that's pretty much confirmed. I know he's not in prison. It's not like Weinstein, but there's enough out there that signifies that to be true. His career is pretty much over. He's tried to restart it in a few indie films, but no, we've written written him off, which is justified. And we're going to be a bit careful in this conversation because we don't want to give too much airtime to Spacey, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, just for a little bit of extra content as well, it was it was Anthony Rapp, who you may know from Star Trek Discovery or the movie Rent. He was in that. Uh, he had talked about it previously in interviews that he had been abused by a you know, like an A-list Hollywood celebrity, but had never named him up until post Me Too movement where he took the opportunity to actually say, you know what, I don't know why I'm defending this guy, you know, and that that has still been kind of floating around the courts for a while now. I don't think it's, it's you know, it, it's moved a huge amount, but those allegations are out there and they are backed up by a lot of people that have said that they experienced similar predatory behavior he was fired from house of cards because of his behavior and things that he had said to people on set and then he sort of 
while he, he then did this thing where he basically sort of apologized, but making it all about himself by saying like, oh, I'm sorry, but like I've, and then sort of made it about how the fact he's now living as a gay man. And everyone was a bit like, uh, A, stop trying to make it about yourself and B, stop also trying to draw some sort of correlation between your gayness and child abuse. Like a, a lot of gay people will know that that's, that has been a problem and accusation since day one, you know, gays, you know, we always have that thrown at our face. Yeah, that like, there's got to be something wrong with us or we have to have had some sort of trauma for us to be to be gay and homosexual. And it's you like, shouldn't be allowed around children. And, you know, and like, it's, you it's, can't coach yeah, the football yeah, yeah. team, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. School teachers aren't, you know, like blah, blah, blah. It, it's one of those recurrent. So that was, that was a problem, uh, obviously. And then he did these like weird videos every Christmas Eve for about three years where he would be kind of in character as Frank, I think, from House of Cards, yeah. but kind of a talking about the allegations against him, not really seeming apologetic. It was very bizarre. And yeah, that didn't really do him any favors at all. And yeah, yeah, he has pretty much fallen off the map. And, yeah. you know, like, it, it, and that's why, in part, I didn't do my usual thing of doing a whole bunch of research into Kevin Spacey, because, you know, usually I would do like these were his early roles and blah, blah, blah. And, and I just thought like, I, he is, he's a monster. He's a predator. I don't want to give him the airtime. I don't yeah. want to like praise him. I think obviously we did, you know, like he was a fantastic actor. He was one of the best of our generation. Oh, For not, sure. Not some of our generation. Well, I guess the generation older. of big actors when we were growing up, like, like you said, like I saw films when I was between the ages of 12 and 18 that changed the way that I perceived uh, movies and what I loved about them. And Kevin Spacey was a big part of Who's that. A big he actor. was known for taking on these incredible roles and being um, diverse and impressive and all this kind of stuff. I mean, he, I, he like won he's, Oscars. He's a, he's a powerhouse performer as well. He, he has that theater background as well. He's commanding. And even at the start of this movie where you start having a voiceover from him, there was a part of me that was just like, oh, I miss Kevin Spacey's voice. Cause uh -huh. he had one of those voices mm -hmm. in cinema that is unlike anyone else, like John Hurt or Sigourney Weaver. As soon as you, you would hear him just doing a voiceover and you're like, oh, it's Kevin Spacey. Like yeah. you couldn't mistake him for anyone else. And I do, I do miss the Kevin Spacey we had in our minds, but not the Kevin Spacey not that the, actually was. The reality of, of that, which is a shame. So yes, I think that's, that's that summed up. We don't want to give him any airtime. We are not fans of any sort of possible resurgence of Spacey. I don't think that he has a redemption arc. There is no way for him to no. redeem himself. Um, unless somehow some magic came out that showcased that he was completely innocent and that everything was false, but that's not going to happen. No, and I think, you know, he's a multimillionaire. I think he's fine. Like, I'm, I'm not feeling awful for Kevin Spacey and yeah. this is what you get when you have a lifetime of abusing minors. So yeah. um, I go. wonder what attracted him to the role. Yeah, I wonder what he connected with, Jesus. So back to the film, he, it was so surprising from the very off to watch how much the narrative is angled towards him and framing him as the hero of this story. Less so, because I even went into this kind of thinking, oh, I know it's going to be slightly different, but they were not even on that at all. They, no. they, they very much don't give you the option to see the two sides and make the decision yourself. 
Yeah. They really don't. I mean, he's he's tragic, yes, but as you said, he is still he is shown incredibly sympathetically. He's shown to like win scenes, you know, like be the victor of an argument. You know, like always have the last word with a needle drop moment or a voiceover piece when actually what he's doing and saying is awful and horrible. Mm. Yet other characters don't get that. You know, often in scenes like he's been awful and his wife, Carolyn, runs away crying, but we're left with Lester. And actually, I think even just reversing that scene around, if Lester stormed off and we were left just lingering on Caroline crying, we'd be like, God, Lester's horrible. He's such a monster. Yep. He's so cruel. But we're not. We're left with a kind of, yeah. You yeah. know, like, you're, like you're, you're cool. You've got this. And I'm sure that's what a lot of, again, you know, back in the 90s, middle-aged white men were seeing and going like, yeah, you're the man. It did, you know, that, that's the problem. That's what's so weird about this now is he quits his job in a very fight club manner. Exactly yep. the same very, way. Very, very similar. He buys the car he's always wanted. He starts smoking weed and working out and you're like this does feel a little bit like it was written by a 16 year old about what they would do if they were an adult and they wanted to rebel it's really bizarre in that from the start he's very much like oh my god my life is miserable i'm trapped and i'm in prison and they do these filmmaking tricks where they like show him looking at his screen and there's there's columns of data to show you know symbolism mm. he's trapped in a prison of entirely of his own making and entirely capable of leaving that situation should he choose. If he is unhappy with his marriage, he should leave that marriage. Yep. If he is not happy with his job, he should change jobs and take some responsibility. He, but he doesn't. He, he tortures her. Yeah, he instead. tortures her. He, he, he blames everyone around him. He brings all of his family down with him rather than just being responsible and just talking and doing something and maybe that is reflective of your classic middle-aged man in america in the late 90s that people weren't talking they weren't going to counseling or therapy they were just having these midlife crises that exploded in drama but it's unpleasant to watch when we are supposed to be following him and our camera is being incredibly sympathetic to him and i was just gonna like if anyone's interested like you know like what do you mean by that there is a scene in the movie where he is fantasizing about a minor and jerking off thinking about a minor. Let's just call it what it is. Let's, it's, let's, yeah. You know, like it is a high school girl the same age as his daughter. He's jerking away. And then his wife kind of wakes up slightly, you know, meanly says that it's disgusting to be masturbating. But then rather than having a conversation, he explodes with sexual aggression being a bit like i'm the only one who's sexually active here you know you, you should jump on this like incredibly volatile she then says like oh my god like clearly on the back foot says like oh i'll, I'll get a divorce you know I'll make your head spin and then he goes after her saying oh i will take half of everything you own being incredibly aggressive and then and then the scene ends not with her looking shocked and upset for the end of her potential marriage, which up until that point, yes, her husband has been a bit absent, but she's kind of been getting on with life. And it, and the camera focuses in on him smiling, you know, enigmatically to himself. And then a voiceover being a bit like, you'd be surprised at what you can like do and surprise yourself, blah, blah, mm. you know, and you, and therefore it's like enforcing, like, I've just won this scene. We, I'm in the right. Yeah. Aren't I clever and smart? 
like it's a weird thing because it's if he was truly unhappy if he had truly had massive problems with that life then you're right he would have divorced her he would have moved out and done some of the things that he needed to do on his own but really what it is is he's bored he's bored and he's lost respect so to then all he does is then torture his wife and somewhat his daughter and fantasize about ways to to break out of that boredom and that's just being a dick like that's not somebody because he doesn't want to give up the house no at the end of the film he's looking at the family and being like oh what a beautiful family i have all this kind of stuff so and he hasn't learned enough lessons for that to have been a revelation he always did he always wanted the house and to stay there he's just bored and and being a dick that's honestly the character in my yeah. opinion yeah because he's so freaking entitled you know like he's we're supposed to see him like like as oh god you you know like you're you poor man you're you're suffering because he's just like i never used to always be this tired and he's there bitching about his wife and her matching like gardening clippers matching her clogs and it's like fuck you it makes her happy why do you care like she's doing something that makes Abby. She's outside laughing with the neighbor and he's like, she never, like, I remember when she used to be happy. Like, she's actually happy. Yeah. You're the asshole. If anything is wrong with her life right now, it's, it's you. It's you. It's just him. You know, she I, cooks a beautiful meal for them every night. While running her own business. While running her own business. This is the thing that Tom and I connected on mostly. And, and maybe it's just our life at the moment that this was the, the, the thing that really frustrated us is like, she's cooked she's worked a whole day she's come home she's cooked a whole meal she wants to sit at the table and they give her shit for playing music that she wants to play yeah like fuck you guys if they haven't done anything like she can play whatever the hell she wants yeah uh, it's it's so unfair to be oh we're not gonna listen to this shit and i'm like well pretty, you cook the fucking meal she's pretty then. reasonable and going like well when you cook dinner you can play your music offer at that point to say okay i'll cook a meal tomorrow and we Done. can listen to led zeppelin or whatever he wants to listen to but he doesn't he's just a bit like and then later you will see him explode in a violent act towards them and then say i'm gonna change the music oh you're still gonna cook dinner mm -hmm. i still expect dinner on the table when i get home even though you're working all day and i'm in the garage working out but i'm gonna throw a plate at the wall silencing you into fear of violence the threat being, if I can do this to a plate, I, you know, what could I do to you? So that he can play his own music. Yeah. And then, but the way that the beats of the movie, when that scene ends, you end with almost a like, huh, you go, Lester. Because he gets the last word and it's, it's him on the last frame. It's not her looking shocked. It's not them crying. No, it's Lester that we're mm -hmm. left looking at. And that's why I get angry at the filmmaking. Now, here's a question for you. Do you think this film would be different if it was a female director? 100%. I think it would. Yes. And it's so difficult because, as I said, I had a lot of admiration for Sam Mendes. Some of his films have been very good. I enjoyed Skyfall. I enjoyed Road to Perdition. Revolutionary Road is a little bit... Not, I'm not so sure, as sure about that. And I'm also sure about... Um, jarhead either so i think the ones where you do have these abusive or macho male characters become difficult and if this script had gone through a female female director i think she would have changed stuff i think that those female characters would be 
more sympathetic, better well-rounded, more depth. And I think he would not come across as the hero as much. It would not be tilted towards him every yeah. time. I think that that's my issue with it, because I think fundamentally, all the stories are interesting. They're, they're all different angles and things that you're not really expecting. Very complex, you know, like suburban life is more complex than you think it is. I think it's just the tilt towards Lester as the protagonist in here, yeah. to, to whom, like, through which we see the story predominantly. Because the female characters aren't well written. Like, Jane as the daughter, what do we know about her except, like, you know, classic male writing? Oh, what would a teenage girl be interested in? I don't know, her boobs and boys? That's all she is. She's someone who wants a breast augmentation and finds it enigmatically charming that the creepy guy next to her keeps filming her at all hours of the day, even after she keeps asking him to stop filming her because she doesn't like it, and he keeps ignoring her and doing it anyway because he wants to. That's her character. Mm -hmm. But weirdly, we're supposed to empathize with Ricky, the creepy boy next door, who watches people through windows, has no respect for boundaries, is pretty much a sociopath. And is not that deep. And is really like he keeps thinking keeps thinking of himself as profound but as as profound and cultured as a yogurt like yeah it's aren't there good cultures in yogurt there's there's, there's good biocultures yeah that's what i was gonna say but there's anyway. more biocultures in a yogurt in a yogurt than there are yeah in ricky in Jesus. ricky he's he's it again i just feel like maybe this period was a little bit lazy and a little bit shallow because it just feels like they found a cookie cutter character for Ricky. He's like, oh, it's the deeper outsider weirdo who actually happens to have a thriving drug dealing business. He's got tons of cash, ridiculously kind of hooked up, but also takes videos of floating shopping plastic bags and then talks about how beautiful it is. And you're like, I don't, maybe. Was this a trend? Did this start a trend or something? But like that kind of emo introspective, yeah, yeah, like pre-Garden State era kind of mm. profound, you know, like eighteen-year-old philosophy. Yeah, and maybe there is a, a a kind of meta joke in that that maybe actually his his philosophies and his thoughts are bullshit, but they're not presented that way. They're presented as profound. Um, like there is a scene where he's talking about. Like, oh, I, I saw a homeless woman in wherever and she'd frozen to death and I filmed her. Like, why would you film her? Like, I just found it beautiful, you know, and she just looks so, Fucked. she just looks so sad. I'm like, oh, I'm sure, like, what a profound statement, Ricky, that she's sad. A, a woman froze to death. I'm sure she wasn't freaking smiling and yep. laughing as she died. Like, good thing you were there with your privilege and your, you know, expensive video camera to capture that moment. It's odd. His his character is definitely unlikable on the on the uh, rewatch. Twenty years later, you know this is this is that long oh. ago. <sighs> is it twenty years? Like twenty four. Twenty three. Fucking hell! Yeah, problem twenty five, which is the same number as this episode. Well. We didn't time it well enough, did we? <laughs> we should have done this. We should have. But then I would have been disappointed if I was like. We're celebrating our big bumper episode with 
American Beauty. American Beauty. An incredibly problematic movie. We both found it to be difficult. So what do you think is its main crime? What is one of the worst things in the film for you that you really hated? It could be a moment. It could be Um, a trend. And I think I've touched on it already, but I just, I hate that I'm made to be complicit with Lester. That's the main thing I like, because I think if I was, if we were able to see Lester objectively removed from him and we were able to draw our own conclusions, some people may empathize with him, other people may find him detestable. I think that would be interesting. I hate that I have to be complicit in his fantasies and made to feel like, oh, isn't this attractive? Isn't this sexy? Uh, When it's not, it's horrible. Yeah. She's a she's a she's a young girl, and then I hate that the filmmaking, like I said, is is making me complicit, and and with that camera, that that the view from the camera, that I unnecessarily have to look at the naked breasts of a minor yeah. when he unbuttons her shirt. I have to look at the naked breasts of his daughter, which is slightly unnecessary as well. Like she was seventeen when they made this, so they had to get her parents to consent to it, plus have representatives on set to make sure that it was legal and everything above board. How is that legal though? Like, I don't understand. I think so long as certain people sign off on it, it's legal. I don't really know. Because anyway, we won't, we don't know. There there are ways around it, but you know, when you think in that planning meeting and they're like, right, Sam Mendes to get the shot of her topless, it's going to be very, very difficult. We're going to have to get lots and lots done. She's actually still a minor. And he went, Yes. No, it, we need to do it. Yeah. Like I just find it it's so We're unnecessary. We're presuming, but it is unnecessary. Nobody stopped it. It's in the film. So we have to presume that somebody pushed for that to happen. Yeah. And I mean, I'm sure you can draw a line between like, oh, she's not confident with her breasts. She wants breast augmentation, but she's comfortable like exposing them to Ricky who's filming across the street and has been filming for X amount of time. We don't really know by that point. It's just that he's already standing there filming when she happens to go to the window. Can I ask a question? Do these characters think that there's some sort of magic force field that stops other characters from looking at these other these windows? Because I have no idea. They get caught out so many times between things happening between the houses. Obviously, um, we haven't talked about Chris Cooper, who is uh, Ricky's father in the film, who's a closeted... Um, homosexual Nazi, basically, from yep. the American army. Again, <clears throat> another kind of deviation on subverting the American dream or the um, what you would imagine American society would be like for, for different individuals. So you've got the military man, you've got um, that, the family, the kind of nuclear family, as it were, and it's all fallen apart. He's another example. But yeah, he he thinks he watches Ricky and Lester getting it on through again the fucking window there's so much going on ah like, <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous yeah and close the curtains um so listen that's i think you're of course i agree with you and i'm joking mostly here but i think the worst crime for me is that alison jenny is only in two scenes has about two lines of dialogue as ricky's mother and doesn't really get to do anything and she's like one of the best actresses i think (laughs) well not ever but like she's great she's winning fucking great and i i couldn't believe it that she was the that character i was like they only had her in two scenes yeah i mean she's good she she's good she does the job she does a job but there's there's not a huge amount to do one of the things i wanted i did want to talk to you about is 
the depiction of gayness in the movie. Uh, and it crops up in several iterations. Homosexuality. Homo, the homosexuars. Yeah. Um, because I feel like we have a, you know, a, a, an expertise in this Tom area. Tom and I yeah. are both gay. I'm pretty sure everybody that's listened to this will now know that or has known that now for a while. outed me. Sorry, Tom. <laughs> but I think it's interesting and I think it leads us into our first to die, which we do need to talk about at some point. The actual death of our character. Yeah, let's do that in the next... Let's do five minutes of um, gay talk. Five minutes gay of gay talk. And then we'll get into no, let's, it. Let's lead in. So uh, I find it quite frustrating in the immediate instance where the first gay characters we meet are the neighbors. And this is again narrated by Lester as he looks at them, but you know, they're both called Jim as it, as if like, Oh, instantly it's a joke oh, because they're both men. Imagine that because they're both men, they can both be called Jim. Wouldn't that be hilarious? Oh, they have a small dog. Like, Oh, look at those homosexuals with their small effeminate dog. <laughs> like, Ooh. You know they are they, they they turn up later a little bit you know at um at the at the colonel's door with, yep. with with a hamper again kind of played for jokes a little bit and I know they do serve a purpose because they they provide something for for the colonel to to, to react against to be a bit like oh bloody homosexuals or fags or, or whatever horrible terms he uses terrible terminology horrible, by the way yeah, it just okay, okay, that okay, cuts okay. through like a, it's word. just awful word that one i'm not one of those gays that likes to use that word personally no um, i don't I, either I have, f-a-g I have, or any i have friends that, that use it and don't it's care horrible. i hate it personally um so so i can see why from a filmmaking perspective or storytelling perspective they are handy to have in this so that but i found that annoying uh, just off the bat i found that Lester essentially blackmails his company with threats of like, oh, you know, like what what about if I add that, you know, you asked me to to suck you off, which we don't actually know is it Brad may even be gay in that situation, which is like a double threat, you know, yeah. like because he, he's like, geez, why would you do that? Like we, you know, so that could be under the surface. So he's then using, he's weaponized someone's gayness against them potentially mm-hmm. for blackmail purposes. And I, I I struggle with that aspect of it, but I do think the that the Chris Cooper's character is one of the more interesting because it it I think it is probably more common than people like think you know yeah. like incredibly repressed gayness that that comes out and then once rejected manifests in massive shame and guilt and anger um, because you know a lot of you know. I think kind of straight laced men only feel like you're only allowed to express emotion through rage and anger often. Um, yeah. And especially you see that a lot in film, like men are only ever allowed to be angry really. Whereas everyone else is allowed to have a range of emotion. I have a few opinions and points of view on this. And to be perfectly honest with you, I could do a two or three hour podcast just on the depiction of gay culture and homosexuality in Uh, men on film and TV, because I do think, unfortunately, that A, it's it's never been good. And we've we've often been victims and we've often been portrayed in a a negative way anyway. Now that it's slightly coming around, and this is more modern day, I'm not talking about 1999. Unfortunately, I think that there is a, a tendency to lean heavily towards the stereotypical, the recognizable. And I understand that for visibility, a lot of our community are 
a lot louder, a lot prouder, a lot more vocal and obvious in their sexuality. But what that has led to is an oversaturation in media of stereotypes, such as the the flamboyant, slightly uh, opinionated, camp, drag-type individual. And, I mean, it's testament, I think, you and I, that that is not always the picture. Um, and I have to say for this, whilst Jim and Jim have the small dog, which is stereotypical, they are professionals with not the usual media type jobs that would be like, they're not fashion designers. They're mm -hmm. not, you know, something that unfortunately, again, I would say TV and media has labeled as a gay job, something that, you know, um, a, a hairdresser. Yeah that kind of thing. They don't do that. They're quite masculine acting. There's, and what I mean in that is that, you know, there's no camp lisp or feminine clothes, all of that kind of stuff. So that step is, is slightly better, but I agree with you that they're not given much, are they? There's no, not, they are, not a hell of a lot going they're on. They're defined by their sexuality. That yes, is their in the purpose film. in the film. And That's this is what you point. used to see a lot of, and it's only really, like shockingly recently that you see people who happen to be gay and that is absolutely not relevant to not the relevant to the plot and a lot of people might be a bit and you, you see again you see a lot of dickheads on twitter being a bit like oh why did they have to be gay and it's like it's because that's actually what that's representation feels like and also that's life yes that's life tom and i don't walk around constantly with a big uh label sign being like we're gay no we just get on with our lives like the things that we like which by the way a lot of straight guys are into the same stuff that we are, and you know, and it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's just normal life. So just do so that, and that is why often, like especially, I I just love seeing characters that make reference to having, you know, like women who have a wife or a guy that has a husband, you know, and it's it's nothing to do with the plot because that's actually what you want to see, yeah. you know, like that that reflects you where you go like, oh, there's a powerful character in a powerful role that is not defined by their sexuality, but back in the day. Yeah, the, the the two gay characters, well, we've got the neighbors, they're kind of, they're a single unit almost. Yeah. Their purpose is to be gay. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the job that they do. And then you've got the colonel who whose gayness defines him into a heinous act of murder by the end of the film. So here's the thing, and I only just thought about this, to be honest. Um, I would argue that the colonel may well have still killed uh, may well have still killed lester had lester not rejected his for his perceived i think because we're, we're watching and we think it's because lester pushes him away and says no but that i have to say on rewatch he does that in the nicest way he possibly can he was trying to comfort this guy he was being kind he was being a dick because he was talking about how his wife is off fucking another guy. And unfortunately, some things lined up that really made it sound like he was, a well, basically uh, had a sham marriage and is is gay. And that reaffirmed in the in the um, colonel that he was safe to try it on. My argument would be that I think even if they had continued with that, maybe continued making out or some other sexual act had happened, the shame and the guilt that is built still up in the kernel, yeah, I'd imagine he still would have murdered Lester, to be yeah. honest. I think the outcome of that would still have been exactly the same. And he still could have killed him, even if they hadn't done that, because 
the the colonel believes that yeah. uh that his son was sleeping with with kevin spacey or at least you know doing sexual acts with him sexual acts sexual um and you can imagine again that 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 anger that his son and his neighbor are able to express and experience this and he can't because he has pushed those feelings down so hard again may manifest in violence so it could have happened what i actually slightly forgot about the end of the movie is how they position like the pieces on the chessboard so that you don't know who actually fires the gun it could easily have been ricky and jane they could be in it together maybe maybe not jane because she has so, she's no not really shown any hatred and wanting to like murderous tendencies as if like her dad is stopping her from doing anything so but it could have been ricky weirdly because you know we know he's a little bit of a sociopath they also try and set up his wife caroline to potentially she has a gun that matches the gun that we see near his head at the end but again she doesn't really have a great amount of motive for doing that except that she's feeling a bit fucked up at that point i think she's feeling like he he screwed it up well made her shameful right she she feels massive shame and judgment and and belittlement by him that's the only thing really and then you know we have the the colonel next door who he's the only one we don't see in the build-up yeah because it makes not it's so extreme a reaction that i don't think we really even think of him after that point yeah true i mean it makes sense because otherwise he would have just disappeared into the rain and we never would so it makes sense to bring him back in that instance though i think probably more realistic would maybe be shooting himself out of shame true true uh and a feeling of not being able to go like he's lost his he's forced his son away you know like his his wife is uh, it, there's, there's clearly like differences with her like with it with her interaction she's she seems a little bit away with the fairies a lot of the time and th- and now this and and you can imagine that would manifest in wanting to off yourself but yep. it seems very extreme like not only does he shoot lester but he's wearing rubber gloves in a sort of very premeditated, pre-meditated yeah. hit yeah. to get away with it yeah <laughs> which it's covered in blood but still absolutely covered in blood yeah. which is odd Yes. Um, a little side note that when I watched this movie, uh, my family had watched it the night before. Oh. Because uh, we rented it. So they must have watched it on the Friday night and I was watching it on Saturday. And uh, we, we were having, my mum called us up for dinner. Hi mum, fan of the show. Nice. And everyone was discussing it. And I was a little bit like, I was about two thirds of the way through the movie. And I was like, so I was following most of it. I was a bit like, but I was spoiled the ending. How much the ending? How much the ending? And then my mum was like, ah, okay. I didn't think the dad was going to be gay. <laughs> I was like, oh, what? <laughs> fuck. And everyone was like, really? <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Oh, I love you, mum, but yeah, you did, you did spoil American Beauty. I don't think I watched this with my family. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I did see it with them, but I have a feeling that it definitely made the rounds of the, the house that they did see it at some point. Yeah. I mean, I just, I find it kind of fascinating just to open up a little bit that where my parents probably were in life when they watched this was very similar to what you see on screen a little bit not to wear our our dirty laundry a little bit but my dad was definitely one of those characters who seemingly pined to be 18 again all of his life as if that was the highlight of his life as if we should all be aspiring you know like oh in our stupid jobs we should just move to california and buy like a 
convertible and drive around. Like that's that was his mentality of what success or cool looked like in his yeah. mind. Whereas I think from my mom's perspective, she's obviously holding the family together a lot. And her idea of success was a, a nice house, yeah. a loving family, you know, nice like things. having nice things and having a meal around the table and being a family, you know, yeah. which is what we see to slight extremes um, in this. And and I think for me, that I that's why I found it quite um, triggering in a way now that I've kind of managed to spend a lot of years like dealing with those and, and reflecting on that time that it brought it all back to the surface a little bit. And there are scenes in it that are so similar that I could almost imagine happening at home. Like um, there is a scene and it really annoys me now. And this is one we were just talking about earlier where she comes home from work and he's bought a 1975 Pontiac Firebird and it's in the driveway. It is a materialistic possession of something that he has always wanted. And with his newfound freedom, he's gone out and bought it. Good for him. And then she comes home and he's just lounging around like a teenager. Fine. She's like looking quite good. So then suddenly he's interested in her again. Mm -hmm. And then as he's trying to seduce her like a little bit and flirt with her, he almost like spills beer all over her sofa. And yep. she not unreasonably just says, you're going to pour beer on the sofa. And he explodes in anger and rage. And, and it's like, it seems so freaking unreasonable because that's her sofa. She said it's a $4,000 sofa. It's she's something that she has bought. She, loves. she is proud of. Yeah. She's, she's an estate agent, a real estate agent. So she is probably interested in homes and in decorating and interior design. She's freaking proud of her sofa that she loves and he's about to pour beer on it yeah and she's like could you just not maybe pour beer on that just put it on the floor and in that moment he could have just put it down and gone and had sex with her and said no problem caroline and worked on rekindling their marriage a little yeah. piece but he doesn't he explodes in rage being like it's just a sofa it's just a sofa Ugh, you're so obsessed with like the material possessions in a way that if, contradictory. Thinking, if she went outside and then keyed his car and been like, oh, it's just a car, yeah. he would not have found that amusing whatsoever. So, this, and that's what that's what really annoys me about this movie is that it's basically, he's just like, oh, it's all on my terms. And as soon as there's anything that isn't on my terms, I'm going to react like a man baby. And I think, yeah, to be a little bit honest, my father could be similar to that. And uh, that's what I found really annoying because I just, I saw that kind of life in it. I think the, the the sad thing is that they they had an opportunity for that still to play out and to allow audiences to somewhat disagree with his character, Lester's character, and to be making up their own decision. But it, as we've said already, the filmmaking narrative is so heavily leaning towards him that it is impossible to do that. You you are they are, the the odds are too in his favor to to go on his side. So. And it leaves with her leaving the frame. Again. He has the last word. He's in the frame. We're left thinking, you go, Lester. Yeah. You tell, you know, like, you know, you're the one who's got it right. Maybe we've just become so old and jaded now, Tom, that we're like, how could he? How dare he? I think as well that I have nice sofas. And if... Yeah, absolutely. If somebody was going to spill something if on I my was, shit, I'd you be know, furious. Like making out with, with my lovely husband and he was about to spill a glass of red wine, I'd be a bit like, dude, you're about to spill red wine all over the sofa. And he would go, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he would be like, oh, you're right. Thanks for that. No, uh, mind. And he'll put it down and then get on with it. And then let's carry on. Yeah. Um, 
it's it, it it's just that narrative that just annoys me and it's like if this is all lester's fault and all he has to do is just communicate and just meet in the halfway and he just doesn't and we're supposed to go along with him and it winds me up that i feel complicit yep fair all right have we got anything else to say we are we're running out of time tom it's getting Uh, close to that moment uh domestic violence and the threat of violence i think we talked about that entitled boomer asshole uh, yep, I think we've talked about that Yeah, we've definitely, that definitely uh, covered that one, guys. Ricky is an asshole. Yep, I yeah, we've, we've covered, covered Ricky being one. a bit of an asshole, creep, a creepy uh, asshole. I have a question. Of, I wonder how the movie would have played out if we hadn't found out who the murderer was. Interesting. A- and it was left ambiguous. And I wonder if that would have made it more interesting or not. I don't know. I but think that, I need that closure. I think you do. I think you do. I think I need it, that but closure. It, it just made me think a little yeah. bit. Um... And everyone is far and away far more interesting than Lester. Yeah. Yeah, we've said that. We agree, yeah. I don't know why he's the main character. Is he a vessel for, for the audience to experience the rest of these characters? Not really, because it no, lingers No, because things much. happen outside of Lester's point yeah. of view. So you can't even argue that it's a biased narration. I was just going to say, I'm going to say two good things about the film. Okay. The cinematography. Beautiful. Very good. I, do we know who the DAP, uh, DOP was? It's not um, Wally Fisher, is it? No. I tell you what, I'll Google it. Well, Have a little well, Google. You, you the other, and, and you can Google this as well once I've uh, said it, the other good thing is the soundtrack. Yes. There is a beautiful uh, composition that they've created that everyone will recognize. I'm trying off the top of my head to remember who the composer is, but... It's, uh, it, it was it, Conrad it, Hall was the cinematographer. Oh, Conrad Hall. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Uh, and... I know our friend James will be shouting at the radio, uh, the stereo right now. Hi, James, because he loves this score. Um, Thomas Newman. Thomas of Newman, course of course, it's Thomas, Thomas Newman. Newman yeah, oh. who also I believe did the theme to Six Feet Under, which was also an Alan Ball gig. Yeah. Who wrote it. Yeah, not Sorry, to. I'm unable to do that. Ignore that. That was Siri. She just likes to pipe in sometimes She's on my watch. Not a co-host of this podcast. I know. It's so rude. Thomas Newman, not to be confused with Randy Newman. From Toy Story. They're brothers. No, I don't know if they're brothers. Imagine that. Maybe they are. Maybe brothers. they should just swap composing gigs sometimes. Where'd you new man? I'm seeing the red rose. He's a weird one. Uh yeah, he's weird. Um I I mean I'm honest, like I do love the cinematography. as we were saying, like a very small detail, but that the eyes in this are lit. Sh- are lit beautifully. Mm. Beautiful lighting in a lot of the scenes. Very, very nice work. But I, I do find that there's a thing about the use of the color red. And it's done in a way that I think when you're a film student, you think is really profound. So deep, guys. And now as like I think as a as someone who's watched a lot of movies, I'm like, oh, it's not that profound. It's kind of tacky, actually. It's it's not very clever. It's yeah. you know, like maybe it was for 1999. Yeah, but I just think oh, it's a bit cheap just to go like, hey, let's just mute down all the colors except red and we'll make it really symbolic i will say one thing so it's just reminded me again of that donald sutherland classic don't look back which had both the color red as an important theme because his daughter was wearing a red raincoat when she drowns in the the pond out the front of the house it's red it's red it's red red and it has exactly the same editing technique that appears in American Beauty with the jump cuts oh, between yeah, the same yeah, action. Yeah, yeah. So I think Mendez has taken a big chunk of Don't Look Back and used that in this film. 
um, or the editor, or the cinematographer. Or all of them all got in on Or it. all of them. But, but anyway, that's yeah, just... I, I and would, my film school head just popped in there. I would agree. The score is beautiful. Yes. It's really nice. I love the different use of instruments. There's kind of Eastern sort of little symbols and things in there. It's definitely out there. Uh, it, you know, especially during the dream sequences that I think really match the weirdness of the dream sequences anyway. Um, and, and the main score is really beautiful and lilting. Yes. Um, wasted on this annoying film. Well, I hope it wasn't an annoying podcast. I hope that us uh, deconstructing and criticizing this film hasn't been laborious for everyone listening because at the end of the day, maybe we've we've saved you from having to watch this film again because maybe you would watch it and feel as angry as we did. Or maybe you didn't. Or maybe like... I just, maybe I we're would wrong. Tell us. Tell us on the socials. it. And you might totally disagree with us. Uh, I know... You know, we, we're kind of on the same page with our opinion on rewatch. Of and we're it. in a different community as well, of yeah. course. So like our opinion is likely to be the same because Tom and I are very similar people. But I'd love to hear from other people if they feel differently. Let's have a let's have a discourse. Let's have a discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Come at us. Tell us why we're wrong. Um, so I think I don't think I've got anything else about American Beauty, but we probably should have a think about what we're doing next. Well, this podcast is unlikely to come out for another two or three months because I'm just probably not going oh, yeah. to have time to edit it. Oh, yeah, who knows when this might drop? August? September? September. No, 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 guys. I'm going to get it for this month. So we're talking now about what will be the June... June release. Release. And that will come out... The last Friday in June. No, because my birthday is the 30th of June, you see. All right, so it's not going to be coming it's out It's not June. coming out on my birthday. <laughs> It's going to be coming out before. So it's going to be coming out on the 25th of... No, 23rd of June. Okay, is that the week before the final Friday? No, because my birthday's on the third day, on the Thursday. So it'll be... Yeah. Or maybe it's the 24th of June. 24th? 24th, there you go. Okay, there we go, yeah. 24th of June. 24th so of June. So what I was thinking we could do, and it is another serious movie. Uh-oh. So... Less people listen to us when we're serious. Yeah, but Three Billboards was our best episode, so whatever. <laughs> it was a good episode. Um, I'm going to do a film called A Monster Calls. Have you seen A I've Monster Calls? I've never seen it. Okay, that's quite good then for us. I've never seen it's, A Monster Calls. Um, I would recommend it. Isn't it a tearjerker? It's pretty sad. Oh, God, Tom. Uh, but it's very interesting. It's done by the director of The Orphanage. The Orphanage. I loved The Orphanage. Um, That's so, a beautiful film. So keep that in mind. It's very Guillermo del Toro-esque. It has really interesting filmmaking techniques in there. Okay. It is incredibly sad, though. So um, I think... Bring I would, the tissues. I would, I would encourage everyone to go and watch it, obviously, ahead of us discussing it, because uh, we will be straight into spoilerific territory. And I think it's better if you watch it without spoilers, personally. But... Uh, with that in mind, yeah, just be one. It, it is very sad, but it's very, very good as well. It, it will, it will stay with you for a while. Okay, well, that's it. That's our June title, A Monster Calls. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us moan about American Beauty. We won't have to talk about Kevin Spacey ever again, I doubt, because he's not going to come up. I don't think he will. I think that's it. We may have draw a line underneath Kevin Spacey. So. Until next time, Tom, when I will try and make sure that I have some damp underwear hanging in the apartment if we are to record here again. I will see you soon. Adios, Jake.